for our second sermon in our Marriage on the Rock series. If you haven't caught the first one, it is online, and uh, the rest of the resources will be posted in the weeks to come. But we're looking forward to looking at this idea of the source of peace in marriage. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would imagine that each of us have not reached our fill of peace in marriage. And so it would not be hurtful for us to learn where a peaceful marriage originates from. We all want a peaceful marriage, but sometimes conflict is an ever-present reality. We live in a world that stokes it. And so we need to know the source of peace. For that, we are going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And I will ask you to stand again out of respect for the reading of the Word of God as we reflect upon the source of peace in marriage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is God's Word to us this morning. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. May be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this study regarding the source of peace in marriage. Father, I ask that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would grant me clarity, that you would guard me from error, Lord, and that you would bless your people. And Lord, if there is... If there are people here today that do not know you yet, I pray that as they reflect upon the peace that you have provided through Jesus Christ, that they would come to you and they would repent of their sins and put their trust in you and be saved this morning. God, that is the greatest hope, that is the greatest word of peace that we will ever hear, that we can have peace with you because of the cross. Lord, speak to us, help us. In Jesus' holy name we ask and pray, amen. So obviously as you look at Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22, the idea of marriage doesn't immediately jump off the page. And the reason why is because Paul is dealing with this idea of hostility between Jew and Gentile. These two groups did not get along. You think your conflict is problematic? Go read some of the stories of conflict between Jews and Gentiles. You remember Jesus 
conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. And she is flabbergasted that he would even speak to her. And she's a Samaritan, which is essentially uh, part of these Gentile nations, these that have fallen away from the true path of a, a Judaic re- religion. She can't even believe that he, being a Jew, would speak to her as a Gentile. And then you see the conflict in Acts 15, when the Gentiles are starting to come to Christ and the Jews are going, well, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to get along? So these groups did not get along. They have what you might call in our day and age irreconcilable differences. Yet because of what Jesus did, these differences, though real, were not the most important thing about them anymore. While both groups maintained different traditions and social preferences, in Christ now they were reconciled to one another due to being reconciled to God. This morning, While we look at this passage and we recognize that it's talking about the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, I think it has profound lessons for us regarding marriage and how we practice and experience peace together. When difference exists in marriage, there's oftentimes going to be conflict. And not all differences are related to sin, which is something we're going to look at in a few weeks whenever we have our panel regarding resolving conflict in marriage. And just as a plug, if you don't mind, submit your questions so that we might be able to do more than just come up with our own and not answer real questions that are on your mind. I'm not going to promise we answer every question, but we're going to try to answer the ones that are most pressing. But as differences exist within a marriage, conflict will arise. And the hope of overcoming that conflict especially for Christians, is in Jesus who provides for us the source of peace. So if we would enjoy peace in our marriages, there are at least three things that I believe that Ephesians 2 teaches us. Certainly more, but at least three. Here's the first thing that I believe leads to peace in a marriage that we learn from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. The first is the call for us to be humble. Be humble. You see this in verses 11 through 13. When the Apostle Paul points out and reminds the Gentiles of their former days, he's doing so to remind them of the redemption that they've received in Jesus Christ, which he details in verses 1 through 10. God in Christ had forgiven the Gentiles and incorporated them into the people of God. But how did he do this? Did he do this by them really doing well, having a lot of money, being successful? What what was it that allowed the Gentiles to now be a part of the people of God? It was the grace of God alone. Now what could possibly happen, because here's what was happening in the first century. Some of the Jews were rejecting the message of Jesus the Messiah And some of the Gentiles were accepting the message. And Paul addresses this tendency of some of the Gentiles, he addresses this in Romans 11, to kind of get proud, to feel like, you know, I really kind of belong here. And to mock the Jews that have not believed. And Paul reminds them, do you remember how you were incorporated into the people of God? It was not by your goodness, but because of God's grace. And so reminding them of God's grace should humble them to recognize that they only belong because of the goodness of God. So just as a principle here, we ought to be reminded that God's grace should humble us, not make us proud and boastful. In marriage, 
when we are tempted to let our pride dictate our behavior, we must remember that we are saved by grace through faith. The only thing that you and I contributed to our salvation is our need for it. We don't have God's grace because we were better than others, but because God was merciful to us. And if that's the case, all grounds of boasting upon which we stand have been removed. That how, that's how it is in the context of the church, and it's how it is in the context of our marriage. This reality of how we've been saved should humble us and empower us to love and be reconciled to our spouses even when we have differences. You say, well, what does humility look like? I'm going to just give you an example based upon what we find in Philippians 2. Paul calls the church in Philippians 2 to demonstrate the mind of Christ. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, think about this as a principle for your marriage. In humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. What if you got a hold of that tomorrow morning in the way that you related to your spouse? If what motivated you when you woke up was not how do I do something for me, but how do I, instead of living in selfish ambition and vain conceit, Humble myself by valuing my wife, my husband, above myself. Now you go, how in the world do I do that? That's so contrary to my nature. My nature is to take care of myself first and not others. Think about the example of Jesus. This is what Paul does. If in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus. Well, what was the mindset of Jesus? who being in very nature God, so having every right to prioritize his own desires, did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. How could he do this? Because he knew the exaltation was coming. That God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue on heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Jesus was able to lay aside in the moment what was rightfully his in terms of his rights and desires and privileges. As the son of God. And prioritize the service of his children to take care of them knowing that one day God will, God the Father will exalt me. Our tendency is to try to exalt ourselves because we don't trust that God will one day exalt us as he has Christ, that we will not share in that glory that Christ has shared in. But the reality is, if we understand that I can entrust my life to God, then I can become a servant now. I can serve. I can care for. I can lay aside. I can humble myself. This is what 
the church in Ephesus was going to have to do if the Gentiles and the Jews were going to get together. They were going to have to humble themselves and recognize that I belong not because of how good I am, but because of how good God's grace is. If our marriages would be filled with peace, then what we ought to be seeking to do is outdo one another in love and respect and care for one another. Be humble. Is this easy? Of course not. Hence, we need to focus in, again, on the source of our peace coming from Christ himself. So the first principle is that we should be humble. The second principle is that we ought to practice patience and forgiveness. Looking again at Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 4, I mean, looking at verses 14 through 18, with this idea of practicing patience and forgiveness. We are told that Christ himself is our peace. And what he's done with the Gentiles and the Jews is that he's taken these two groups and he's brought them together by tearing down the hostility that existed to them, that sought to keep them apart. His purpose was to make in himself one new humanity, and that this new humanity would receive this peace that comes from him. If the Jews and Gentiles were going to be reconciled with one another, they were going to need to draw upon the patience and the forgiveness that they had received from God himself. They would have to look to him. They would have to remember that God was patient with me. Anybody? Has God been patient with you? Anybody? Show of hands. Yeah, he's been very patient with you. He's been very patient with me. And, and if that's the case, why would we withhold patience from others? Has he been forgiving toward you? Show of hands? Yes. Why would we withhold forgiveness from others? That's what would eventually lead to the breakdown of that wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile in the church in Ephesus was recognizing that as God has been patient and forgiving to me, how could I not be patient and forgiving with others? I'm not telling you that by following these principles, you're not, that you're, you're going ne- to have a peaceful marriage that you never have conflict. <laughs> Anybody sells you that, they are lying. They're not married. In fact, I knew one pastor that would not marry a couple he, he would not officiate their wedding if they came to uh, premarital counseling and said that we never fight. <laughs> he said, oh, well, somebody's not being honest yet. So come back, with, come back to me once you've really had a nice, big, long argument, and then I know that somebody's being honest. I don't practice that per se because I just assume that you're lying. Um, <laughs> And uh, you're just not, yeah, so everybody has conflict. The point here is not that you will never have conflict, but that once you see that there's conflict happening, you have the resource, the source to work through that conflict, which is recognizing the grace and the patience and the forgiveness that comes from our relationship to God, where we might apply these truths to our spouses and to all of our relationships, really. If both spouses are believers— If both love Christ, then both spouses have been shown grace from God through Jesus, and this should constantly be in view when we are working through our conflicts and our disagreements. Our marriages are more than just a husband and a wife together. You are also brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that ought to be able to get along. We are not our own. 
We function as a union brought about both by God's grace and through marriage. And if this union will be preserved, it will be on the basis of the practice of patience and forgiveness just as God in Christ has practiced toward each of us, which Paul will talk about in Ephesians 4.32. How do I forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you? Well, how can I do that? I've got to remember what he's done for me. I've got to remember what he's forgiven me of and how he's reconciled me. Now, we're going to talk about this in a little bit more depth when we talk about conflict, but I, I want, I, I've just mentioned a scenario where we have both spouses are believers. What do you do, though, when one spouse is not a believer? That's a, that's a good question, and it's not an uncommon question. It's one that we ought to work through, and Scripture is sufficient to address that for us. What do you do when your spouse is not a believer? Well, Scripture tells us that if that spouse is willing to remain married to us, we are to be- demonstrate love, patience, and forgiveness to them as well. 1 Peter 3, 1-7. through 7. In fact, that with even almost out of word, the unbelieving spouse would be run- one to Christ. In fact, God often uses the testimony and love of a believing spouse to save the unbelieving spouse. And I'm not suggesting you should stay in an abusive relationship. Again, there's so many ways I would want to qualify this so that you make sure that you're not getting hemmed into a situation where you're saying, oh, I just have to endure constant mistreatment and abuse and unfaithfulness. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you have an unbelieving spouse who loves you but doesn't love Christ and is willing to stay in the relationship with you, that God often will use that relationship. Now, I'm, not also, I'm also not saying that you ought to go be a missionary dater. You know what I'm talking about? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You were in college and you found somebody that you was, thought was really attractive and they weren't a believer and you're like, I can do it. I can save them. That is not what I'm saying because Scripture also says that we should not be unequally yoked. But what I'm saying is, is what if... Life happens, and circumstances you weren't aware of, things, and you end up in a marriage with somebody that doesn't love Christ. What do you do? You win them with love, patience, and forgiveness and grace. Now, one of the most profound places that I've seen this was last summer in Lebanon. Uh, Andrew Brown and I spent a lot of time with Syrian refugees in Beirut, and these Syrian refugees had come from Syria, fleeing the persecution there. And many of them, many of them were women, that had husbands, and their husbands were Muslims, and they were believers. And it's one of the best parts about this is how often I heard the story of how these women were brought to Christ as a result of their neighbors inviting them to church. Just real simple. Like, hey, I want you to go to church with me. And the husbands were like, hey, look, I'm not going to go with you, but you can go. And we would go into their homes, and we would visit with them, and we drank just an obscene amount of coffee. It was, I mean, I love coffee, but you have to pace yourself when you're going house to house in Lebanon. It's a different breed. So they would sit us down and we would drink coffee. They would introduce us to their kids. And then without a doubt, they would tell us their testimony about how someone had invited them to church and they came to Christ. And then they would say, I want you to pray for my husband. I've been sharing the gospel with him. He lets me go to church. He doesn't come yet. And even sometimes he would show up, which is a little disorienting. Because you're thinking, what is he going to think about us being here talking to his wife? And we were talking all through a translator. So that's, you know, sometimes uncomfortable because you don't know, have a clue what's going on. But every time you saw this wife that just had a confidence that just as the gospel had saved her and been merciful to her, that in time their husbands would come to Christ too. 
How? Through this demonstration of love, patience, and forgiveness. Their confession of faith in Christ did not lead to greater conflict, but actually to a peaceful testimony of the goodness of God. I'm looking forward to uh, new things that happen in the new year too as well. Just as, a, as an aside, talking about Lebanon, I want you to be praying about how God might be stirring in your hearts opportunities for you to go spend a week among these Syrian refugees to share the gospel and to get to know them a little bit better. We are planning some trips and opportunities. And so I'm gonna go ahead and plant that seed and pray that the God of grace would let it grow in your life to give up a week of the year to go and invest in that community. But that's, that's an aside. That's not the point of the sermon. We are to practice patience and forgiveness. Lastly, not only should we seek to be humble in the context of marriage and practice patience and forgiveness, finally, we ought to keep Jesus at the center of your relationship. Keep Jesus at the center of your relationship. I find this to be the case in verses 19 through 22. When Jesus is at the center of our relationship, our differences and our preferences begin to take a back seat to the most important reality that we share in common, which is Christ. In these verses, Paul uses the language of a foundation, which is something we already saw last week in Jesus' words in Matthew 7. And in this context, he's speaking about the foundation of peace is for the church in Christ. But I believe it also extends to the context of marriage as well, especially since later on in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is going to draw a connection between marriage and Christ's relationship to the church. Husbands, one of the ways that you keep Jesus at the center of your relationship is showing the love that Christ showed to the church in the way that you love your wife. You have a responsibility to love her sacrificially as a servant, just as Jesus did the church. Wives, similarly, you have a mutual responsibility to demonstrate respect and love, just as the husband is to respect and love you, as the church was called to respect Christ. The only way that this works is if Christ is at the center of our marital relationship. It's a mutuality of giving and care and love and respect is grounded in our hope that Christ loves us and has shed his grace upon us. We simply will not show the mutual love and respect to one another that we are called to show if our hearts have not been changed and if Jesus is not the controlling center of our life. To use an analogy that Pastor John Piper uses, I think is very helpful. One of the ways that you can think about this is if your life was a solar system. And at the center of that solar system is the sun. And the sun holds all the planets in orbit. What we want in the solar system of our marriage is for Christ to be that sun that holds everything in orbit. We don't want something else to take its place. If everything else is going to have order, it must come from Christ being at the center. He must be the one that holds all the affairs of our life in orbit, including our marriage and our relationship with our children and our neighbors and our friends. When we relate to our spouse, we should relate to them in light of what Christ Jesus has done for you and for them, which leads us to the final question as we close. What has Christ done for us? 
What has he done for us that would so empower this way of thinking that we would be humble, that we would practice patience and forgiveness, and that we would keep Jesus at the center for the sake of Christ being the source of our peace in marriage? We see what Christ has done for us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins, which you used to live in when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who were disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, living for ourselves, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show us in Christ Jesus. That he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that you cannot boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. We will experience peace in our marriage in proportion to how we experience and reflect upon the peace that God has won for us through Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is the ultimate source of peace in our marriages, in all of our relationships. We need him to fill us with his love, his forgiveness, and his patience. We need him to remind us of our constant need to be patient and loving. To remember that our relationship with God and our spouse, this peaceful relationship, depends upon his grace that empowers us. What would it look like in your marriage, in your relationships this week, if the animating power behind that was remembering that you've been saved by grace. That he has forgiven you, that he is patient toward you, and that he loves you. That is the source of our peace. Just remember what he has done for us that we might demonstrate it to others as we relate to him. It's my call for us this morning. Would you pray with me? As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equipped for Good. Thanks for listening.